Acts 22. Unmasking of the vipers. We'll get to why it's called that in a moment. First, I want to tell you something. The, the state of theology a survey. It is a survey done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. They do it every two years. And taken from their website, this is how they explain the survey. Quote, every two years we take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship, end quotes. That's why they do it. Well, this year's results are in. 2022 is a year to do the survey. And I want to focus by intro this morning on the response data of one statement. Here's the statement. They ask the people being surveyed, people who claim to believe in Christ, you need to know that this is a very accurate survey. You can go look it up. They do a large poll from all over the country, and they try to represent every demographic. And these people think that they say they're a Christian. So it's pretty accurate information. Here's the statement. The statement is this. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the question that the people taking the survey need to think about themselves, and they can select one of four options. Strongly agree, somewhat agree with the statement, somewhat disagree, and strongly disagree. People reading this, thinking through that, here's the statement again. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. 27% strongly disagree. 17% somewhat disagree. 24% somewhat agree. That is 68% of these Christians that in some way don't think it is important for them to personally encourage non-believers to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Only 32%, less than a third, strongly agreed with this statement. Where are you this morning? Maybe this morning you do disagree because you yourself have not believed. It would be absolutely logical if you haven't believed and trusted Christ as Savior, you maybe don't think you should ever tell someone else to do that. That would be smart. If that's you today, you are the only one who gets a pass. <laughs> if that is you today, you are not here by accident. You're not here by accident. We don't believe in uh, coincidences in God's economy. We believe in divine providence. And so it's not a mistake if you're here and you're not trusting Christ as your personal Savior. Pay attention. My admonition to you today as you hear this testimony that we're studying of a man who did believe and, and did great things for God. Listen and respond. If you're here today and you don't believe, listen to me right here at the front. God has brought you here today to hear the gospel. You can hear it and be saved from the wrath of God that is to come because of the love of God in Christ. Pay attention. The rest of us get no such pass today. To be numbered among the 68% of American Christians that have some sort of problem or outright disagree with the notion that your lost friends, your lost family members or coworkers or acquaintances or the stranger down the street, to, to know that they're on the wide road of unbelief that ends in eternal hell and to not care about it to any degree, that's sin. It's a problem. As a pastor here, I think I know our church. And as members, I would say, if I gave you this, you would 100% strongly agree that we need to care. But if I were also honest, including myself in this, I think we're about 50% practiced sometimes in doing what we believe. That's not a heap of condemnation. I think that 50% is growing. I, I was slow to even put a number on it because that's probably unfair. But I think we are growing all the time, and I hope uh, we're growing in our efforts to want to see the lost who don't know, don't have a relationship with Jesus, come to know Christ. This is something we want to grow in. And now, honestly, after seeing this, I was so shocked. We have to get this right, don't we? <laughs> we have to. If the state of mind of the church is accurate in this survey, then 
then, then we are more against the mission of Christ that we're studying in the book of Acts as a church than we are for it. We're more against it currently in this climate. So how do we get this right? I'll tell you at the forefront, we do not seek to get this right by adapting or changing the gospel. We cannot do that. We don't adopt seeker-friendly evangelism. We don't compete with sinful culture trying to do what they do in some redeemed fashion. We don't force conversions. We don't manipulate. Let me tell you what we do. It's boring, but it's beautiful. We do what we just did. We stand up and we read God's word together. And then we do what we're doing now. We preach through the word. And then we do, Lord willing, what we've done in these other places together. We pray and we go out and we share. And we just keep encouraging one another in that. Well, if that's all we have to do, then we need some examples, right? I mean, that's basic stuff. You could tell any Christian that wants to see someone that doesn't believe in God, believe in God. You can tell them, hey, you should, you should align yourself with what God has said to do. Study his word, preach the word, pray the word, spend time around the word together with other Christians, and then go share the word. Any Christian's gonna say, yeah, I wanna do that. But when you go out there and you share the word, brother and sister, maybe this week around the Thanksgiving table, or maybe at the water cooler at your lunch break, or maybe in the discipline session with your child, or maybe as you go and you meet that Walmart person and they're just so friendly all of a sudden, you don't know why, and the Holy Spirit says, you need to share the gospel with this person. That's when it's hard and we forget examples. Acts comes to the rescue today. <laughs> Here is a man, Paul, the apostle, standing, giving a testimony. I hope this morning you can catch a fresh hope of evangelism and that get a, just a strong dose of it going into Thanksgiving, going into the holidays, going into a lot of opportunities, brothers and sisters in Christ, to witness to those who do not believe. There's a viperous religious leadership that is unmasked in our text. That does happen. It is the, the main point of what the narrative is teaching. Along the way, the wonderful example in this text is the evangelism efforts of Paul toward them. It truly is shocking. I would ask you to please take notes. And if you are, here is what your outline will be today. It's H's all the way through. Four H's. We're going to look at the history, the heart, the hatred, and the hope. The history, the heart, the hatred, and the hope. I'll try to give you those as we go along. Let's talk about the history. I want to think about this passage's history with you in three ways that will help us. We're going to think about their history, the actual people in this story. Then we need to think about the reader's history, people who received this firstly. And then I want us to think about our history today. What is their history? Well, when we say there, I'm referring to the people in the actual words recorded in this story. Okay, the history is rich in this passage. And like all history, it is better to study and understand history, the good and the bad. Some say especially the bad, though, so we do not repeat any errors. This is a good rule when you're thinking about history. Paul, his history here, the man speaking in this passage, very simply has a reputation for proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only way to know God the only way to have eternal life, and the only way to have a meaningful life as you live. That's what Paul is known for. Paul has shared the message of the gospel unashamedly across the entire Mediterranean at this point for the last 25 years. You are picking up the story at 25 years, a, a, a quarter of a century worth of faithful example of Paul. It's coming to an end. In that time, Paul has shown no partiality. He has shared with every person he has come across, whether they are Jewish or Asian or Greek or Roman, Egyptian, black, yellow. Eventually, he's going to be shipwrecked on an island of Malta with a bunch of native people, and he's going to share the gospel with them after he gets bit by a snake. I mean, this guy shares the gospel. That's Paul. Who's he talking to? Well, their history is the brothers and the fathers of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem at that time, the religious leaders. 
This group that he is like before that are acting so crazy in the text, uh, you know, there is a crowd here. There is Jewish men leading that crowd in front of what is likely a large constituency that has gathered behind Paul, men and women that are Jewish, and they are there uh, with a plan. They have, for the last 25 years, the leaders especially, they have unashamedly demanded that anyone who believes in Yahweh must also keep his laws. At this point, these have begun to share that you are not saved through Jesus Christ alone, but rather you must also keep the Jewish laws and the customs. They have begun to teach something different than Paul in reaction to Paul, who is in our text the example we need to follow of preaching the gospel. And that tension, which for some of them, they love Jesus, they're born again, they're in Jerusalem church, but they're hearing these false teachers, and so they're very confused. For the false teachers, at this point, it is getting very clear they do not have the true saving message of faith. They do not have the gospel. They're saying, believe in Jesus, plus you need to do all these things that the Torah, the Old Testament law commands. That's not true. So they have shown constant partiality. The difference between them and Paul, their history in this story is they've been stirred up in this moment because they've heard gossip about Paul that he loves the Gentiles, true, but they have twisted that love he has for them to say that he is profaning the temple, he's profaning the rites and rituals that he should be obeying, that all the Jews they say should be obeying, hence our very, very tumultuous situation here. If you'll notice in verse 4, Paul considered uh, Christianity the way. These religious leaders hate the way. They want to stop the way. That term appeared in Acts earlier, and it really came from Jesus even in the Gospels when Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through me. Paul has stood on this in confidence. They have stood against it in hostility. That's their history. Now, what about the reader's history? We don't often talk about this, but this moment in Paul's life, it's likely happening in the late 50s AD. And his death, according to historical tradition, it happened in Rome around 64 to 67 AD. Well, this book, the book of Acts, most scholars agree, gets written before 70 and likely around the time of the apostle Paul's death. In other words, Years after this moment actually happened, the book of Acts is being going with the book of Luke, Luke and Acts, same author, were being taught and taken, taken into the homes and the houses of churches that would have known this moment. I bring that up. It's important to note because 70 AD is when this Jerusalem temple, the, the Jews who were angry, this, this mob, they, they worshiped there. In 70, it will finally be destroyed by the Romans. The Romans will finally be done with the Jewish occupation there uh, because of a lot of these religious leaders even. Many of them get violent and they will be killed and imprisoned and exiled even more by Rome. Today, you can go to Jerusalem and visit the Wailing Wall, which is the only left peace standing, peace of this great building, and, and watch people weep before God as they think about how the Romans have destroyed it. That's the Jews. That's what's going to happen to them. 70. But right now in this little space where readers, people like you know Christians in the Jerusalem church and in, in Samaria and the churches around it, and Caesarea, and eventually the other places. They are getting this copy that me and you have that we're studying right now, and they're looking at this history, which is very recent for them. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, it hasn't happened yet. When they're reading this, the Jerusalem temple hasn't been destroyed. The, the, the false teaching of the, the Jews that is so challenging the gospel in this example that they are then living in, that's their context. In other words, guys, they had a ton of enemies that God in the moment was pleased to let them be under and around. They did this to Paul, and we know by studying history that they did it to many other followers of Jesus after him. Paul is paving the way by an example. They picked this book up, remembering just years ago that this had happened, and the question for them is for us, what will I do with this information? What will I do when I need to share the gospel, and it's costly, it's hard, 
What will I do when someone who I love says they believe the gospel, but then I hear them say it's the gospel plus works? How do I confront them? How do I out myself as somebody who believes in this way when it is not popular and it could mean, just like Paul, my head possibly? Well, that brings us to our history. This book is for you, church. This book is for you. It's for me. This book was written with the knowledge about your family gathering this week for Thanksgiving. God knows all things. He ordains all times. He knows every single day of every person has been written in his book. Just like he formed the infant in the womb and knew them from the foundations of the world, he knows every day. God wrote the book of Acts for you. The people who received it, it was for them. They were to try to figure out how to be a witness in a very difficult situation. It's no different for you today. This book is something to study, to navigate, to help us understand that there are going to be some times where we are called into very uncomfortable or awkward, and even sometimes violent encounters if we get serious about witnessing and sharing our faith. You may not live in the shadow of the Temple Mount today, but hear me, beloved. If you're a Christian here today, you do live in the shadow of the temple made without hands. You live in the shadow of the example of Jesus who went to Jerusalem and bore the cross for your sins, and, and rose from the dead and ascended on high and will one day return and has left you as an ambassador for his kingdom to go and declare his excellencies. You live in that shadow. And so, just like they would have been fighting to think, how can I share with my pagan neighbors? How can I go and have relationship with Gentiles that are now Christians? How can I work with the church? How can I grow in my efforts to evangelize? So do we or at least we should. That purpose, our historical purpose, is to preach the gospel, to be a witness. The history of our text is clear in the story. It's clear for the readers. My question to you this morning, is it clear for you? If it is, you probably are asking how. Well, that's our second H, the heart. Let's get into the heart of this together. Look, there is, there is not a greater heart uh, for evangelism to study. Will you bring me that water? Thanks, Dylan. Sorry, I know that's awkward, guys. I'm just thirsty. But listen, there is a greater there is not a greater heart for evangelism, thank you, brother, to study than the heart of Paul. His example is an example for us to follow. In the book of Romans, which he wrote prior to the situation we're studying, more than likely months out, Paul says about these men that he's talking to, this is what he says. Romans 9, 1 through 4. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Do you hear that? Let's not dare doubt the love Paul had for these people. He loved them. If he could, he would give up his own salvation, which is impossible. He's using hyperbole to convey, look, if I could, I'd be cursed if they would see what God has done in Jesus Christ. Paul's heart for these lost Jewish brothers in front of him is seen in clear, uh, two clear ways. These are also H's if you're taking notes. He shows honor and he's heroic. So how does Paul's heart show up in this passage? He shows honor and he is heroic. And that's what we need as well to be good evangelists, brothers and sisters. Let me show you. He shows honor. Now, Paul respects these men. And get this, they do not deserve respect. He respects them and they don't deserve it. I mean, our text alone has shown that and how they act. I mean, screaming, ripping their shirts off, taking their coats off. Right? Grabbing dust, likely they're in an area that doesn't have stones because they're, they're in front of this tribune and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a kind of a, a meeting. And so it's likely a very groomed place, not a lot of stones around. So they just grab dust instead because if stones were there, they'd grab stones because they want to kill Paul. These, these people are, are, are not worthy of honor, we would say, for being honest. 
But prior than our text, they've done no better. Last week, Blake taught us that these men, they have secretly already begun to plot hatred for Paul. We're going to learn next week they're going to conspire to commit murder. They're going to hire assassins to try to kill Paul. They are like a viper waiting to strike. They have been called that by, before, by the way, the viper idea. They've been called that before. This same group uh, was called that by the last Old Testament prophet. Get this. God raises up in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem, the last of the Old Testament prophets. You know him as John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was having a message of repentance, preparing people for Jesus. And get this, in Matthew chapter 3, 7, these same religious leaders, many of them likely, go out to meet John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist do? Well, listen to verse 7. When he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I love John the Baptist because I'm like, like, they didn't even say anything. They just walk up and dude's picking a fight, right? He's like ready to fight them. Like, he's like, what in the world? What are you doing here? You, you, you den of vipers. You literally, you are curled up with lies waiting to strike people and infect them with poisonous death. Get away. Who warned you? He's mocking them. Who warned you to flee from God's wrath? Yikes. That's the reaction they deserve. That's what Paul would be justified to say to them. He could stand up before them as he quiets them and could say to them, you wicked and evil rebellious men who killed Jesus, you would, and, and they would just lose it, right? But he could do that. He'd probably be justified in it. He doesn't. He calls them family in verse one. You see this? He speaks their language, the Hebrew language, verse 2, to get them to calm down. Verse 3, he identifies with the good of their religious identity. Verse 4 and 5, he shows them by understanding them, saying that he was just like them. I was there once too. I get why you're here and want to hurt me today. I've been there. He shows them compassion and sympathy, and care, and honor, and respect, none of the things that they deserve. What causes a man to be so kind? That same letter to the Romans that he wrote when he mentioned he would have to go and do this thing we're studying first before he came to them, this is what Paul wrote in chapter two. He asked the Romans to ask themselves a question. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and God's patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? A man that writes that is a man who believes that. And a man who believes that is a man who stands in front of his enemies and with kindness toward them first says, will you just hear and consider God's love? I mean, Paul should condemn them and he doesn't. He shows them honor. That's an example for us to follow. Seek to show honor in your efforts in evangelism. I know that some of the people and the things they believe today are extremely offensive. They are very condemnable and you, have, you would be absolutely justified biblically to show up to people that believe absolute like false narratives that our nation is even falling headlong into about murder and about, and about you know, issues and there's just so much that's bad, right? But it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It is God's kindness that led you to repentance. It is God's kindness that led, led Paul to repentance. This man believes in kindness and he shows it to people that don't deserve it. And secondly, he's heroic. His honor, hospitality, they are true, but they have a limit. In other words, he shows honor and is hospitable to make a way to then actually share the truth of the gospel with them. He is heroic in that sense. The most loving thing you can do with a lost person is share the gospel with them. Do you believe that? Because 68% of the church is heading another direction saying, probably not the most important thing. Are you today numbered among one-third of the church in America polled, and I'm separating you from the survey and just very warmly inviting you to realize the lo most loving thing you can do when you go and meet with your family this week or you spend time with a lost friend 
or you're around someone is you can have the courage to share the gospel with them. Paul's witness here is a defense for what he believes. Verse one, the word defense, it's apologia. And literally is where we get the idea of Christian apologetics, which is where not where we apologize for our faith, but where we defend our faith. We are ready to give an account of what God has done in us when somebody asks or sees, or we made a way for them to be interested in it. A lot of times that's just walking up and saying hi. <laughs> but really, I mean, we are ready if we are like Paul and we need to be heroic. Paul's testimony in verse 6 through 21 We've already learned about in Acts chapter 9. We got to witness it there. Uh, We will continue to hear it. In chapter 24, he'll give it. And in chapter 26, he will give it. Well, for that, I'm not going to break it down for you verse by verse. But a few things stick out to me that make Paul a very clear teacher. One thing you'll know about Paul, if you study chapter 26 or 24, this passage or 9, you will see that when when, when we get his story, we always get three core things. We get who Paul was before Jesus saved his life. We get the absolutely radical transformation of his true conversion. And then we get his calling. That's a good testimony. If you're looking for something to share today after this sermon that gets you fired up for evangelism, think, what was I like before Jesus? How did Jesus save me? And what has he called me to? It's a good place to start. What's interesting that helps our text is each way he shares that shows up with him having great care and being very Uh, very tactical in the way he applies it. In other words, you can't just memorize a gospel outline and then just go dump that on everybody. You also need to cultivate in yourself a genuine care for the person. Like you need to be ready to be like, go off script, never off Bible, never off gospel, but at least be ready to realize this person is displaying a certain type of rejection. Paul knows what these men are using to reject the true gospel. And so what does he do? Do you hear how Jewish his testimony is in this? <laughs> Listen, this isn't a ploy. This is not some, you know, like turn of hand, you know, like, uh, like we used to do with all the big events we did, right? It's like, come have this awesome thing we're doing. Now sit down, right? Turn or burn, right? It's not that. It's not a manipulative kind of like sleight of hand to get them to the gospel. It is a genuine recognition of who they are. And Paul is equipped as a former Jew to really lay into it with honesty. Okay, for instance, until they hear the word Gentile in verse 21, he has their attention, right? Why is that? Well, Paul was a faithful Jew prior to his conversion. He talks about that. He wants them to realize that when he, before he was converted, that the highest witnesses they have, he's appealing to their sources, right? The highest witness they have, the high priest himself, he says, go ask him. He'll tell you, I had papers. They probably got a copy of them where I'm going to Damascus because I'm going to arrest people, drag them back to Jerusalem, commit torture against them to make them blaspheme God or cast my vote against them when they die. One of them you know, his name's Stephen. That was me. Now that is very attention grabbing. (laughs) You can sense the silence in the moment. But Paul's being intentional there on purpose. Verse 12, Ananias is spoken of, the man who comes to him in his conversion. What is he spoken of? He's a devout man according to the law. Now that that was not mentioned in Acts 9, but it's here, why? Well, law means the Torah, Jewish law, which is exactly what his hearers would understand in that moment, right? This isn't some Gentile that's believed that comes. This is a, a upright, you know, in the eyes of Yahweh, practicing faithful Jewish man who's come to Jesus. Paul leaves that bit out for now. And he comes to Paul and he says, receive Christ, right? Receive Christ. And Paul does. Look at 14. It's the God of our fathers. You see that? Paul's even willing to say the God of our fathers. He truly believes that as he shares his testimony with them, even if they're enemies to the gospel, God could give them the identity of being a son or a daughter. He actually believes that. So he presupposes God's faithfulness and says the God of our fathers very Jewish. Verse 17. Afterward, it says he notes that he went to the temple. So his calling, eventually the Gentiles, first, what did he say? He went to the, he went to Jerusalem. He went and he did. History shows us. We know that from Acts and that's where they are now. Here's my point. This isn't deceptive. It's a wonderful example of sharing the truth in love. He gets these men and these women who are assembled. He wants them to know and feel comfortable with his presentation so that they can get their biases out of the way and see Jesus. 
This is a good example. Before we move on, if you go into situations and you know going into those situations that the person you seek to win to Christ is going to be offended and you make it your goal to start there, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. There are times, and there will be for a person who's truly, um, that the Lord is converting, there will be times for you to cross that bridge. But if you start there with a, 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 an anger or a, or a judgment, a, a judgment that is not yours in this moment, you know, because you're not God, you're not arbitrary, in that sense. You, you can't arbiter, excuse me, you can't, you can't be the one that actually judges them in that moment. Right? You can't, you can't call down that fire right there to consume them as they'll spend an eternity. And if you go in wired thinking, my love for them is that they would just change this, I'm afraid you'll miss the whole notion of God's kindness leading someone to repentance. Paul models to this, in this speech to us this, this common grace that he sees between him and the Jewish brother and sister. Common grace is not a fancy term in evangelism which is crazy to me, right? I think it's just because we all just fell into 68% lies in the church in America and no one's sharing their faith. And so all the efforts to get us to share our faith, if you go study the history of it, we're all from the 50s and on. And it was these large pushes to just memorize an outline and go out there and do it because we were so nervous and, so, and no one was doing it. So I'm like, look, if you go share the gospel and it's only that and you're just calling people out, at least the gospel. Paul also writes that same kind of thought in Galatians, right? He's like, or Philippians. He's like, hey, at least they're preaching the gospel, even if it is out of envy. But there's more. Like there's more to evangelism. And we, when we can't see someone right there repent and believe the gospel, we can remember what is common grace in their life and ours. And we can seek to cultivate conversations around that in an effort to then pray constantly for an opportunity to really share the gospel. You can make this your own. Common grace does exist between the Jews and Paul. He uses that in hopes of gaining a few. Now, listen, he is heroic here with the truth. He he does not stay in common grace too long. He is ready to transition to Jesus as Lord. And he does. He does transition to the explicit commands of Jesus he tells them who Jesus is. He's the righteous one. You see that? He is the righteous one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that you are rejecting. He makes it clear to them. Paul tells them with that one statement that God is, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God among us. He is the God who died for us for the punishment we deserve. He is the God who raised from the dead in fulfillment of scripture so that those who believe will be raised and have hope as well. He is God who is with us. He is in us in his Holy Spirit living within us. He's like a spiritual temple made without hands. God who keeps us for all eternity as we trust in him alone. That's the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a believer like I mentioned earlier, hear hear what I just said now. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be saved. Paul does share the truth with them and, and it brings finally uh, the, the result. But I want you to really take note in this as you look at this second point. He went from common grace to Christ as Lord. If you only stay in common grace, you're not a faithful evangelist. I'm also saying if you are Christ as Lord, this one's tricky. But if you're Christ as Lord all the time and you never seek to love, you never seek to try to get to know someone, to sit with their, their, their hiccups, to understand like Paul did that you, know, you were like them in so many ways, like he tells the Corinthians to remember, you're probably not doing great evangelism either. We'll take the latter, preach Jesus as Lord all day. God will use it. We'll take it. But let's be better, right? I mean, let's be a people that believe that God's gonna use the common and the clear to get glory for himself forever. It makes us patient. It makes us love people. That's the heart. The next two are shorter. They're pretty, they're pretty short, but they're clear. The hatred. The hatred. We live in a hate-filled world. And so the reaction of these Jewish leaders in the crowd, it really should not be surprising. But if you really think about it, it still kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> it was for me. The gospel is an offense to the idolatry of the world. Don't forget that. And in this moment of time, the idolatry 
is a big building and a big religious system in the hope of being a nation again that would honor and glorify God and have a, have a, have a law that they all have been received from God and a king that rules over it. That's their idol. And that's what they want. And if anything gets in the way of that, they will take it out. That's where we see this hatred. I think, we, I think after we observe the hatred of them wanting to kill Paul, we get over the shock. We consider two more quick H's in this, the hurt and the help. You see, when you share the gospel and there's hatred, often it first comes in the form of the hurt. That is, you get hurt. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. What word? Gentile. When they heard that, it says what in verse 22? Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Up until the word Gentile, they were possibly being persuaded to believe. When that word showed up, the hell that was in their heart burst forth. They made themselves known to be the brood of vipers that they were. We must understand something fundamental about sin in the lives of those who we share with that are lost. Sin, original sin, natural sin. It takes the good creation and the good things of God. It takes the truths of God and it twists it. Sometimes it twists it just slightly. Other times massively with the intent to create false gods. And those false gods that are made often in the man's image is what they bow and worship to. And when Paul shared the truth of the gospel from his testimony, they were fine with his Jewish upbringing. They were probably passively okay with some kind of experience he had in conversion. But when he mentioned that this was not only to give him a new life, but to give a new life to people different than they are, the Gentiles, they lost it. Paul had finally, with the truth of the gospel, poked their idol, right? He poked their idol. He took it away. And what happened? They erupted. You need to be ready for this, beloved. Paul shared the truth. And when he began to say that God saves all men and women indiscriminate of their heritage, their culture, religious identity, race, it was the truth that he was sharing, but it challenged the false gods and the self-worship of these people. Literally, their hearts were like soaked in gasoline and the truth of the gospel ignited them, but it did not ignite something like regeneration and God's faith. It wasn't that. Instead, for Paul, what we see is that it was like a, a match going into that gasoline of anger. Verse 22 through 24 is heavy and discouraging, and there's no way around it. There's no way around this. In one sense, we should not try to get around it. If we're actually going to follow Paul's example, we've got to realize when you love someone and you boldly share the truth with them in love and they refuse to have it, and they instead choose to, you know, just be violent, <laughs> to just love their sin, to just to declare to you that, you know, they want their sin and they don't want what you want. That should be devastating to us. I think it was devastating to Paul. I think a man who wrote, I would give it up if I could, if they would have it, to then stand there and watch them when he's made an earnest appeal, to watch them reject it with all that violence. Oh, I just, I feel the weight of his discouragement in this. I hope you do too. I think it was devastating to Paul because he doesn't seem to have the strength to speak up to the Romans until he's brought in. They protect him. They bring him in. But they're not bringing him in in some nice way. They're bringing him in to examine him. Maybe the chief temptation we have in witnessing is the fear of making someone we love upset with the gospel. Maybe that's a thing for us. Maybe if you're here today and you want to be like Paul, you share, hatred comes, and there's this hurt. Maybe you recoil at the idea of hurting in a self-preserving way. That's likely some of us here. Maybe we don't. Maybe we do not want to hurt others, so we skirt the main thing in keeping them from loving Christ. We talk about the gospel, but we don't talk about their lack of holiness. We talk about the gospel. We don't talk about what they prize more than Jesus that is an idol in their life. And we know it and we love them enough we should share it and we don't because we're fearful of this kind of hurt. Paul, not being afraid, avoids both. Both are wrong. We must get past our fear of hurt and we must get past our fear of offense. We have to share the gospel in love. You should take courage if you're here today from this uh, dear Saint Paul of ours. Because even when it's hard, you share the truth in love. 
Every lost person you meet, whether they're in your family having turkey with you this week or you meet them on the street, they're going to have some trigger point, some word like these men had in this situation. Maybe it's their love for sin. Maybe it's the understanding that God is still good even though they have lost someone or something terrible has happened to them. Uh, Maybe it's you calling them out in love, but I promise it will happen. Be used by God even when it's hard. Paul, in his willingness to be bold, also was willing to be hurt. But in the hurt, he gets help. I want to show you this. It's an amazing account here. In case you forgot, the Romans are there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they saved Paul's life. This tribune leader, he's like, okay, they're going to kill this guy, bring him back into the barracks. It's more of a private area, still court feeling. And, and, and what's crazy is they clearly did not understand either the language of the Hebrews, Aramaic. They may not have spoke that or, or spoke it not very well, Greek speakers. And if not that, they did hear it and they just don't have a clue what he's talking about or why it's making these people so mad. So being like Romans, like they are, uh, they think we're just going to beat the mess out of this guy to get the information out of him, which is, which is, that's Rome. If you ever study history, you're like, yeah, that's Rome. Brute force. But here's the thing. It's not just any force. Flogging, this would be the same that Jesus experienced. This is um, a tool and device created by the Romans Likely had nine uh, tails on it, little pieces of bone and metal. If you've ever seen uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, it is actually accurately depicted, used on Jesus. Something that when men experienced this type of punishment or torture uh, by the Romans, when it was fully done, they were likely dead. If not, they were almost certainly paralyzed and they would never be able to walk or do normal things again. Very, very brutal that Paul is about to endure here. So in the hurt of seeing his brethren that he loves reject God, he's dragged in, he's spread out, doesn't say anything yet, he gets spread out. What that means when it says those straps there, it's literally to his stretching him out as far as he could be so that they could expose all of the meat that they need to hit with their target. And they're getting ready to hurt the man, and it's now that the amazing kindness of God shows up. Because guess what? Paul's a Roman citizen. Now, it is illegal in this time to bind a Roman citizen and to punish them with this type of torture. That is not allowed. And if it is found out, these Roman leaders, the centurion and the tribune that are there, they could face death. Now, why would Rome have such a rule? Because they realize this is horrible and it shouldn't happen to a Roman citizen. Here's what I'm trying to encourage you with. In the midst of sharing the gospel, in this great discouragement, tons of hurt, here's Paul going back silently. I mean, I think his head's down. It's conjecture. It's not, you know, word for verse here, but, but he doesn't speak in the text until he's stretched out and they're prepared, having, you know, agreed as a team to, to punish him to find out what's going on. He then speaks up. And it's not like he's just, again, ready to burst out with gospel to them. He just instead has wisdom to say, I'm a Roman citizen. To me, this tells me two things. One, Paul did not go in sharing the gospel with a martyr complex. He didn't want to die. He's not forsaking wisdom. He's wise in his efforts. And that's what comes to him. After he has authentically shared the gospel, he's received a hurt. What kicks in? Wisdom. He's wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, and he's not abandoned. He knows his Lord is with them, I'm sure. And what does he say? Wisdom comes out, I'm a Roman citizen. They're like, what? Oh, we are about to get in humongous trouble here. They take care of it. They had this conversation. The guy's like, hey, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. Uh, it means a lot to me. Paul's like, I was, I was a Roman by birth. We don't know why, but in God's sovereignty, Saul of Tarsus, who got a great Greek education, and then was sent to Jerusalem to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. This Paul, God, has taken care a long time ago to provide a way for him to stay faithful, even when it was hard, and then be taken care of. In the hurt, there was help. I hope this encourages you. When you get rejected, when you get cast aside, when you get dismissed, or even if you get violently treated for your witness for Jesus, remember, God is the greatest defender you've ever had. You have to know this if you're in Christ. You will get pommeled and discouraged, and you will want to give up, and you will want to quit. But if you will be like Paul in this text, you will realize that even at a very low moment, I do believe God is still in control. You can believe that. 
again, Paul has written wonderful help for himself before going. The Holy Spirit wrote in Romans 8, what shall we say to the things, to these things that have been written? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, God, not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn me? Paul knows it. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul goes on to say, no, none of these, nothing separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you believe, can can you put your Bible together with me in conclusion here today and realize that I think a man like Paul, that the Holy Spirit is used to write that. He writes the letter of Rome knowing, telling the Romans, I'm coming to see you. I hope to go to Spain. I got to go to Jerusalem first. I'm not sure what will happen there, but I know the Spirit has testified I'm going to suffer. And that dude still went and was willing to be flogged for Jesus. Why? Because he knew. He knew what God had revealed. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Those are just scars. I'm already blind. He was probably blind at this point. He's struggling to see. We know that from a lot of other studies probably. More than likely, he's already been beaten multiple times, almost stoned to death. We know all that from Acts, right? Paul's like, give me another scar. It's just another way for me to point people to Jesus. I'm willing How do you get a heart like this? Well, again, I think in the hatred, there was hurt. He dealt with it. He didn't overlook it. He saw God as his help. And then look at verse 30, the hope. Paul knows on the next day, he doesn't know this, right, in the moment, but verse 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the leaders, unbound him, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and he set him before them. <laughs> if Paul viewed the hatred of the Jews and the action of the Romans as being a lost cause, surely this gives him hope. <laughs> I don't think he did, though. It wasn't done yet. Paul knew if I'm breathing air, God's still got a plan if I'm supposed to be using it and I'm ready. And man, God does have a plan. He has a purpose. He has a testimony. He would get another chance to testify to the grace of God. Uh, This may seem small, but as we wait for God to save, as we trust ourselves to him in every effort to share the hope of Christ with the lost, we must throw ourselves upon this hope. We must. You will have to wait until next week to see what happens in this text. But for today, in closing, take hope with you when you leave today. Take the hope that when the world seems to be caving in, your witness is being dismissed, you feel hatred in response to the love you're trying to share of Christ and his word, when you feel like you're trying and nothing happens, and it literally just feels like the world is going crazy around you, take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. That's real. It's real for the church. God is not done with people when we think he is. So we must persevere. We must persevere. Some seed that you and me sow, a Puritan wrote, it may lay in the ground long after me and you do. Are we okay with that? Some seed, some gospel witnessing you may do, it may lay dormant in someone's soul as God is working their salvation out with fear and trembling, right? He's working in them in that way. It may lay there until... You lay in the ground and you go to be with the Lord. But, but God says his word will not come back void. Will we plant and will we persevere? Will we be like the sower of the seed, trusting God, even when paths and birds steal it and thorns choke it out and the persecution of this world is t- intense? Will we trust that God is raising up wheat? It's got 10 and 100 fold. Galatians 6 comes to mind for me often in our efforts at RBC. Paul, mind you, uh, writes to the church of Galatia. He says this, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The next moment uh, where we're about to sing to God is an opportunity for us to do a special good to the household of faith. When we get to sing, God, sing together, we sing to one another these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so as you get, gather your bulletin, and I'm going to pray, and Blake's going to come up, you're going to notice that we're going to sing of the payment that Jesus has made for our sins. After that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, another physical example together that we get to have to be especially faithful in the household of the faith. Before I pray, I wanted to read these, these last two verses because I think they inform our evangelism because they get our eyes on what will be and it keeps us faithful. Verse two of what we're going to sing. Lord, now indeed I find thy power, God's power, and thine alone. It can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. And when before the throne, we stand, I know it says I, we stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Let's pray. Give us lips that repeat this now in hopes of heaven. Lord, help us to indeed find that strength, that power that is yours alone. God, our brothers, our sisters, our moms and dads, our aunts and our uncles, Father, our friends, our own children, they're lost and they don't know you. And we pray for the courage of Paul. Grant us the ability to know ours and their history, to have a heart like this evangelist. Oh Lord, to endure hatred if it may come so that we may have hope to see that you are always working even when we cannot see it. Help us to go in this hope. Help us to pray in this hope. Help us to sing in this hope. Help us to see in this hope as we take the Lord's Supper together that you are working. We trust you, God. Grow that trust, we pray, in proportion to how much you love us. Thank you, God, for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.